on the sign. Ten minutes is pushing it. <laughs> Welcome. Good morning, everyone. Um, to Bucre Baptist Church. It is with a full heart that I say Happy Mother's Day um, to the mothers in the room, two of whom I know are, are uh, recently very full homes. <laughs> um, happy Mother's Day to you. Um, Meg is unfortunately out today, and every time any single person is out, we always miss them horribly, um, especially when Meg is out, because instead of a beautiful introduction to whatever passage we're reading today, all you get from me is just a nod towards Jake, and then he's going to start reading. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked... There was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, worship him day and night within this temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Please join me in a prayer of confession. God, our shepherd, our shelter and our salvation, through your strong and gentle care, you lead us through the land of darkness and despair to find our rest, our comfort, our hope, and our joy, your unending life and unfailing love. But we are not content to trust your guiding. We want, oh, we want so many things. We want to comfort and shelter ourselves. We want to run from dark valleys and great ordeals, even when it means running from you. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for our wandering affections. Return our feet to your path and our hearts to your ways. Amen. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. For the Lamb the center of the throne will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcomed, you are loved. Let's rejoice together and give praise to the Lord, for salvation belongs to our God. God of comfort and compassion, through Jesus, your Son, you lead us to the water of life and table of your bounty. May we who have received the tender love of our Good Shepherd be strengthened by your grace to care for your flock. Amen.
producing this next album. Something I often think about is all of the ways and details that I can see that God loves me, but I still kind of feel this distance where it's hard to feel that internally. But even as we pray in those, those words of confession and assurance, sometimes it feels like it's easier to go around the valley when that's the place that God's going to be with us.
Christ as he comes to deliver his sermon from Proverbs. I pray that we would seek you for wisdom in the words of God. But you've given us our words of wisdom, but ultimately, wisdom comes from you. I pray that we would seek you now in this time. In your name, amen. Proverbs chapter 3, as we continue our series through the Proverbs. I'll ask you this morning, even more than usual, uh, to get a Bible in front of you. I'm going to be very specific at a few points in the sermon. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand, and we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of ours with you. Proverbs 3, it's towards the center of the Bible. Y'all, I'm already pumped about this series, <laughs> and I've only preached one sermon in it. It's just this book. It's so good. Annalise and I have a ritual each morning that we call Coffee Bible Jesus Time, where we sit and we read the Bible together and we pray for each other. Sometimes we read a little, sometimes we read a lot. It just depends on what book we're in, but we've decided to read through the Proverbs as I'm preaching through them. We've been going through them very slowly, just usually one or two each morning. Usually I'll read and I'll ask Annalise to give some sort of thought before I offer thoughts, which are usually a lot, and so I give her a chance to speak. This week, on Thursday, I finished reading two Proverbs and looked up at her, and her comment was, this is really good advice. Maybe both laughed, right? Because obviously, Bible. Um, but realize, <clears throat> in a world filled with advice, most of it trash, here is something good and true. Do you feel the weight of that? In my work life, I, I work with a lot of nonprofits. One group in our city, Sankofa, I have no idea where the name comes from, but it's a great group. They work to bring fresh fruits and veggies into neighborhood stores that usually don't have them. Uh, they don't have access to fresh food. And reading through the Proverbs the past few weeks has been like that kind of work in my life. My life is filled with bags of chips and sodas, and all of a sudden this book is giving me Satsumas and green beans and things that are good and fresh and lifeish to shape me spiritually. Whereas before, much of the advice I had taken, much of the advice I took, was cheap and easy with a flashy label, and it tasted good. That same advice was misshaping me in unhealthy ways. I long desperately to know whether or not I'm living my life in a way that is wise and meaningful. <clears throat> my ringtone in college. Do you remember ringtones? We need to bring that back. What happened to that? Because that was awesome. My ringtone in college was John Mayer asking me over and over again every time someone called, am I living it right? Andrew was right last week that this book of Proverbs is like a vein of silver or gold in an otherwise hard ground, an otherwise barren landscape. I am eager to mine the wisdom in this book and allow it to shape me to inform the course of my life, to teach wisdom to my children, to teach it to you. When I started this series, I claimed in our society we've replaced wisdom with two things. Information and immediacy. Information and immediacy. The difference between information and wisdom is kind of like the difference between knowing the right answer and knowing the right question. We know all the answers, and the ones we don't know, we Google, right? But we've forgotten the questions that really matter. To quote John Foreman, I was joking with Phil earlier that my sermon today is sponsored by 90s Rock. Uh, we've got information in the information age, but do we know what life is? Do we know what the human life is meant to be? All of your furious efforts and emotion in life, and everyone that I talk to is tired, all of this running. Do we even know where we're going? And shouldn't you figure out where you're going before you go any further? We've replaced wisdom with information, and we've replaced it with immediacy. Immediacy, again, pulling from Chris Armstrong, is when you gauge the importance of events on whether or not they are happening now. And you gauge the importance of ideas on whether or not they are happening or relevant now. I want to try to explain, again, this idea of immediacy and explain it a little 
better um, to point out some places I see immediacy in society. I remember putting our crib together for the first time, a memory that came back to me this week as I put together another crib for another kiddo. Uh, but the first time, about five years ago, when AJ was first coming to us, we were finishing the foster care process. It was a moment that I realized by basically all standards, I was an adult. <laughs> and I was shocked to realize that by all standards, I was an adult because I was shocked to realize, hey guys, welcome. I was shocked to realize my own immaturity. In my mind, the great scandal of adulthood is the great scandal of adulthood is how little you actually grow up into an adult. We still tell our parents like we're teenagers, we tell our ancestors, you don't understand, man. In the way we live, in the way we tell stories of our histories, in the way we overvalue immediate things. We prove that we tell our ancestors and those who would offer us wisdom you don't understand. For example, in our society, I wanted to give some specific examples to try to explain this well. Millions of people knowingly trade mental health and privacy to media companies every day in order to know not what is true, but what is trending. And every day we trade our individual voice and expression in order to be what is trending, allowing what's popular to shape our expressions to the point where many of us have lost all sense of self, intellect, or expression apart from the opinions and approval of others. We idolize and imitate those people who are influential, regardless of their character or wisdom. We trade loving relationships for taking sides in intellectual battles of today. This book of Proverbs is speaking specifically against that kind of valuing of the present and ignorance of the past, the refrain over and over again in this book is, My son, hear me. My child, listen to my teachings. And in our passage today, my son, don't forget. So read it with me, Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. My son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I ask again, just that your spirit move me this year, God, because we need to be set free today, God. We need to know your truth, which we know will set us free. I pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. My son, don't forget my teaching, the passage starts out. I'm reading the Harry Potter series with our seven-year-old right now, and there's this great scene in which Neville Longbottom, a very forgetful kind of clumsy boy, if you don't know the series, receives a gift one day in the mail from his grandmother. Something called a Remembrall. It's a little glass ball that changes colors whenever you forget something important. And he picks it up out of the package, overjoyed to have help, not to be so forgetful. And immediately... Remember, all brawl changes colors. And Neville says, this is so good. Neville says, well, I know I've forgotten something. The only problem is, can't remember what I've forgotten. <laughs> that scene sticks in my mind because I have that feeling so often about little things. Like leaving the house with a feeling that I know I've forgotten something, but what is it? Or in preaching and teaching so often, I sit down and just kind of sigh at the end of a sermon because I have this feeling like I've forgotten something, and I don't know what it is I've forgotten. But I've forgotten it, and I can't remember. I feel it too, playing with my children. I recognize that I have forgotten something in my growing up that's necessary to playing a game of pretend, for example. Or really just letting my guard down and getting silly with them. But what exactly I've forgotten, it's hard for me to say. I don't know. It's easier to know you've forgotten something. It's harder to know what it is you've forgotten. 
Societally right now, there is a great sense of loss. Almost all scholars agree on this. Most of the people I talk to just on the day-to-day seem on the brink of being overwhelmed by loss. Out of most mouths, I hear, what a world we're living in. Or if you're older, things just aren't the way they used to be. Or if you're younger, no one ever said it would be this hard. Collectively, we're conscious of having forgotten something, some wisdom, which might cause us to thrive individually or as a society. But like Neville, we can't remember what it is we've forgotten. We disagree. Most of us, I think, along with theologian Mark Taylor and others, are in varying stages of giving up on remembering or finding any kind of cure to this loss that we feel. To quote one of the defining movies of my generation, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. But this morning I tell you I have nothing to sell. But I do have hope. It's a genuine hope. And I want to share it with you. Hope that life can be something other than loss and pain. That it can be more like resurrection and joy. But we need to remember, we need to call to mind not what is immediately in the world around us, or even what we believe God to be saying to us immediately today. We need to remember God's works through the ages. He's been weaving a better song, a better story of the world through all of these years. Here in our passage today, there's a piece of what we've forgotten. C.S. Lewis says it beautifully. He says, Most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past because we need something to set against the present, to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar who has lived in many times is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and microphone of his own age. If you're reading our passage, I'm stalling on verse 1. And that's intentional. Because I know when we read Proverbs 3, anyone who grew up in church, anyone who's been around church for any length of time, goes straight to verse 5. It's a famous verse. I was in a Sunday school room last week where the verse was painted on the walls. But I would argue you shouldn't consider verse 5 before you consider verse 1. You aren't going to have any chance of learning, of leaning not on your own understanding until you gain a sense of the Lord's understanding and learn to hear the wisdom coming from our histories, our Father's instructions. Until you learn to look past your own individual time and place, you have no hope of your path being straight. And I'll explain what I mean. Uh, this is where you need the Bible in front of you and looking at your text. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and I'm volunteering Bill to hand you one. Verses 5 through 8 are an extended metaphor. And in chapter 2, the metaphor is about taking a journey. Uh, You can see in verse 6, the author is introducing the idea of straight and crooked paths. Uh, Most of the Proverbs repeat the same idea twice in different language. So the author is saying here, if you lean on your own understanding, if you're wise in your own eyes, then your paths will be crooked and dangerous. If you trust in the Lord, though, if you fear God, meaning if you're in awe of him, if you acknowledge him, then your paths will be straight, away from evil, and you'll be able to rest, it says, and heal. Are you seeing this idea repeated in the passage? The metaphor is specifically not just being on a journey, but wayfinding on that journey. How are you navigating? How do you know which way to go? We're used to this metaphor of life as a journey, but the nature of our journeys has changed. And so in our modern day, we have to do a little work to understand what the author here means. First, we're used to driving everywhere. Most of us are. But you need to keep in mind that ancient people were mostly walking on journeys. Animals were used to carry supplies and things, but horses were very rare. Mostly it's donkeys and camels at this time. Stirrups wouldn't be developed until much later in the Middle Ages. Uh, So riding is rare. So you're walking everywhere. And you tend not to take unnecessary journeys when you're walking because it's really hard to go on a journey. Ancient people were not big explorers for the most part because it took enormous effort to get anywhere, especially anywhere far away. Traveling was also very dangerous. You today, you can put your wallet in the glove box and lock your car. You know, but if your car is a donkey, he's going to be very upset if you put anything in the glove box. 
And ancient travelers had to play a delicate game of traveling with enough on them where they could get from one village to the next, but not so much on them that they became a target for thieves. We are used to t-shirts saying things like, life is the journey, man. Commercials always have teenagers in cars with the wind and the sun in their hair. And I'm like, those commercials were not filmed in New Orleans because you just roll that window right on up and turn the AC on, right? Um, but yeah, not so in the ancient days. Ancient t-shirts probably said things like, eat local, shop local. In fact, just don't go anywhere else ever. <laughs> if you're going to go on a journey in the ancient world, you were probably either fleeing something like war or famine or you're going on some kind of pilgrimage or mission. Either way, you wanted not to live life on the road, but you wanted always to arrive at your destination. This is not Jack Kerouac on the road, James Dean on a motorcycle. You know, this is a refugee seeking a home or a messenger sent on some errand of great importance. And you have to remember this is before maps, not just the, the map app, but before paper maps, before paper for that matter, actually. Uh, definitely before the invention of the compass, before any kind of directional instrument at all, in fact, more accurate than the sun itself. This is also before roads. Roads weren't around until around Jesus' day. The word for road in ancient Hebrew just means the way or the path, the way to get from where you are to where you want to be. There were few bridges, so sometimes you would need to go around a swamp or around a valley or a lake. There was no dynamite. So you would have to find a pass through the mountains. There were no roads through them. No saws to clear forests, so you'd have to go through the forest. And if you ever try to walk through a forest or in hill country, you know it's extremely easy to get turned around. Even to start walking in circles and waste hours of daylight or days altogether. To find your way on a long journey in the ancient world, this is what you would do. You would have to stop and ask people along the way, where is the next village? How do I get there? You would constantly have to gauge whether the person giving you the directions means you well or means you ill, whether they really know the way to go. And when they told you the directions, because there are no maps to keep your paths from going in circles, they would have to give you directions according to what today we would call keystones or landmarks that you could see from a great distance, like a mountain or a constellation. Because if you focus on your feet, as you wind and find your way, you get turned around, you walk in circles. But if you're able to see a landmark off at a great distance, you can always right yourself and get back on the right path to make your paths straight and begin walking again in the right direction. So in our passage, the author says life is like a journey, dangerous and unfamiliar. If you don't heed the advice of people who have walked it before and depend, if you try to depend on what you yourself know if you are wise in your own eyes you are going to get lost you're going to walk in circles if you decide to just do things your own way your way isn't going to take you anywhere near the destination you'll be lost in an enormous world the author says acknowledge the lord in all your ways he's going to be for you that mountain god is going to be for you that keystone in the distance so when you get turned around if you acknowledge him if you look at the lord again you can start back on the right path instead of wasting your time and effort. If you keep acknowledging God, then you'll get to the next village in good time, it says, time enough to rest and heal your flesh before you start out again. Life is like a journey without a map, without a compass, and with a dire need to get where you're going. Do you feel that? I've been thinking a lot about parenthood lately for some reason. I don't know why. As a parent, I desperately want a map. As a pastor, especially, I'm constantly thinking, can I just get like a landmark to know where to go? Happy Mother's Day, everyone. <laughs> can someone tell me where I'm supposed to be going? Because I'm pretty sure I just walked in a circle. I'm pretty sure I'm off the right path here. The author of Proverbs gives two pieces of advice, and to quote my wife, this is good advice on wayfinding in life. The first one I've already harped on, you have to stop and ask people who have been there before and who care about you, your fathers and mothers through the ages. And also, secondly, in all of your ways, acknowledge the Lord. Look at him. Keep looking up at him instead of down at your feet. You may stumble more doing that. At least, at least you'll be moving in the right direction. 
And I want to get real and practical here for a minute because I, I know when I say acknowledge the Lord, your mind may jump immediately to two things, either legalism or mysticism, uh, depending on where you're coming from in life, either operating within the bounds of a set of rules you've derived from Scripture or depending upon your own mystical ability to hear the right directions from the Lord. And I want to say to you this morning, that is all, neither of those is at all what Solomon has in mind when he uses the word understanding. In fact, as a pastor, when I hear a person express confidence in their abilities to follow the law of God or confidence in their ability to always hear directly from the Lord, I take it as a mark of immaturity. Because wisdom begins not with confidence, but, the author of Proverbs says, with fear of God, with awe of him, with doubt, with a troubled spirit, with questioning and dependence. Tell me if this verse resembles your Christian life. As Paul writes, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We read in chapter 1, understanding begins with fear or the awe of God, so start there. If you once felt the awe of God and now you feel you have largely grasped his word in ways in the world, stop. Go back. You have lost the right path. Or if God for you is still a philosophical concept and to kind of pick apart and tell jokes about before you take a sip of your drink, you need to come to a place where you are in awe of him. If you tell me I have no idea how to get to a place where I am in awe of God, I would respond, finally. Now you know how little you actually know. Stop and ask someone who does live in awe of God, and ask them how they got there, and then ask someone else until you can find a way. If you're in a place spiritually where you feel like the awe of God is something you once knew, but you've forgotten, tell me. Tell the people around you, like brave Thomas, so we can give you directions until you find that wisdom again. And then when you begin this dangerous journey, you're going to need to find people along the way who have been further than you to tell you which way to go. For me, I stay in constant contact with another of with a number of other pastors and people whom I consider to be wise and who actually care about me like a son. I ask their advice. I'm open with my life and thoughts and invite their advice rather than waiting for them to speak up. We also need to learn to read the signs left behind by those who have come long ago. Just thinking in this, sometimes a, a blaze on a tree, even with its, if it's faded in time, it can save you a lot of pain. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a hiking trip with um, uh, several other pastors in the region, and we got lost at one point, and it was getting dark. We were running low on time, and we were trying to climb a ridge. It was actually a bit of a desperate situation. There was a storm coming. We needed to get to camp pretty immediately, and we lost track of the trail. And so immediately when we lost track of the trail, we all stopped and started looking for the blazes that tell you where the trail is. All five of us stopped and searched for about 15 minutes with the light fading, but we had lost the trail. So if we had moved, we had no idea if we were going in the right direction or if we were backtracking. Finally, we saw a blaze on a tree about 50 yards away, put there God knows how long ago to mark the trail. And honestly, it saved us. Many times in my spiritual life, I have been there, where I look around and realize my whole friend group, my whole church, has got something wrong, has gotten lost in some way together. None of us know which way to go, and it's been some saint of old, usually, some book or scholar who showed us the way again. What I do is I find people who seem to acknowledge God in their ways, and I ask them for reading recommendations material or topics of research, and I treat those like blazes on a trail to try to find our route again. When you fall, of course, you're going to need people who are walking not ahead of you, but beside you, on your same path to carry you. Through the various gifts of the Spirit, we all kind of carry each other, serving, as, serving each other as good stewards of God's very grace. The best guides will tell you not to keep your eyes on the guide, but they will point you to God himself, who himself will be your keystone, and tell you that in all your various ways, acknowledge him, and you'll go straight there, rest a while, heal from the pains of the journey, and be able to strike out again. If you get lost, 
Stop and find where God is. There's no point in moving again until you spot him again, until you know which direction you're moving in. I'll end this way. I said last time there are so many examples in literature of this metaphor of, in Proverbs, of the Christian life being a dangerous journey. One example, which is both old and wise, is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where the author dreams, and in his dream, the pilgrim, Christian, must go on a journey and face many dangers on his way. And he writes this. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Pray with me. Father God, I pray as each of us figures out, Lord, which way we'll go, Tomorrow, God, the ways that we will spend our next day, our next steps, God, I pray that you would be with us in that. God, I pray that you would help us look to you and acknowledge you. God, that we would not depend upon our own ability to hear directly from you. God, that we would not depend upon our own ability to understand your things. God, but that we would not forget the teaching of our fathers. God, and the people who care about us and want to show us the right way. God, I pray that we would acknowledge the ways that have been trodden before us, Lord, and not just wander off for the sake of movement, call it progress, and just keep walking. God, I pray that as each of us has left the right path, God, that you would bring us back to you. God, and I pray that as each of us in our lives has failed to acknowledge your ways, Lord, that you would show us who you are, that we might know your way. I pray that we would do this together and that we would learn to carry each other. I pray all this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Amen.
Father, on this day, we're in so many of our minds. We're on our families. God, I do just want to say a prayer for all the mothers represented in this room. God, the ones that we've lost. God, the ones who have desperately longed to have a child and have not been able to. God, for those who are rejoicing today, for the good gifts that you've given them in children, God, for those who are mourning today, lost in separation. God, I pray that you would be with us all. God, please nurture us like a mother and draw us like a hen under your wing, as the psalmist writes. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, as we know you hear us. Before we go today, please join me in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord. Peace be with you.